Humans, like all biological organisms, seek to leverage their natural surroundings to their benefit. The human capacity for rapid transformation of their environment, especially in modern times, is so great that some have come to call it by its own geological epoch, the Anthropocene. As with any power dynamic, incentives exist such that those with power seek to retain and those without seek to gain. Consequently, the usage of modern technology is set to grow, even if it has negative consequences for the health and sustainability of the natural environment. Such is the conclusion of the film The Planet of the Humans, which argues the environmental movement and its recent corporate and billionaire sponsors have become corrupted by the very same cynical motives they outwardly claim to be fighting against. Tonight we discuss this phenomenon, along with a brief update on the 2020 presidential election debates. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time to hear it. And welcome back to the Myth of the 20th Century podcast. My name is Hans Lander. Today I am joined by my three venerable co-hosts, uh, Mr. Nick Mason, Mr. Hey. Mr. Adam Smith. Hey everyone, and I, I love the adjective you chose there. Thank you. You're very welcome, sir. And uh, Mr. Hank Oslo. Hi everyone. Now, I just did that because apparently there's still some confusion about whom is who. So now you have no excuse to confuse us. Who are you again? Maybe you your mother shouldn't have named both of you with H's. <laughs> yeah, maybe I should change my identity to like Frank or uh, Zachariah or, uh, you know, I don't know, Uncle something. Just well, to make it clear. Mr. Hans Lander, we know that's your actual name uh you must have yes. a middle name would you like to use your middle name uh, let's go with jedediah wait That's are you guys using fake names syllables i've known you for how many years are you fucking serious yeah this is my real name bro what are you talking about it's not a fake name oh yeah that's what I, yeah yeah okay now adam seemed to be implying that this was a fake name or something what yeah, i will, what my I will property say taxes my, and everything uh, it's great it's, that's not my real middle name. My real middle name is not Jedediah, so that's at least maintaining the cover identity, right? Yeah, unless they know your birthday, they can't really right. steal your identity. Exactly, exactly. Happy birthday, by the way. Thank you, sir. Oh. Thanks, man, thanks. So, gentlemen, uh, we had, uh, you know, some Kabuki theater the other night. Um, we had two old guys. Screaming at each other. Um, man, I'm sick of all these old white men, man. Yeah. Anybody but white guys, 2020. Um, it was it was quite the spectacle. 
Um, I have to say, I was laughing pretty hard about three minutes in. It was uh, it was definitely reminiscent of five years ago, when uh, you know Big Don walked onto the scene and uh, pretty much punched out everyone that first debate. Yeah, the the 2016 Republican debates, which I recommend everybody, you know, I've got a nice big archive of kind of meaningful uh, political videos, uh, mostly things like debates and important speeches mm-hmm. over the past five years. And just like charting out how in 2016, uh, it, it's like your first day in prison and you just walk up and you find like the biggest dude and you just beat the shit out of him. And then you kind of work your way down the line until you're a, a shot caller in chief. That's uh that's the vibe that was uh, the 2016 GOP primaries. There's a little bit of that energy. I'll I'll be honest, having never been in prison um, and having seen some of the, (laughs) I'm referring to like prison movies, of course, of course, having seen the average size of your, um, your yard rat that works out every day, all day. (laughs) uh, I do not think that is advisable. If any of our listeners or any of us actually find ourselves in the slammer, uh, you might die uh, doing that. So consider, consider beating someone up your size. I think that our listeners would be well advised to heed James LaFond and just don't ever get arrested. Yeah. Especially these days. It sounds like a pretty bad idea to get arrested. So. Doesn't seem like the most fun time. Yeah. Well, uh, well, was... I, I didn't watch it. I don't think Adam watched it either. So why don't you I didn't guys even know it happened. <laughs> if there's anything that we missed. Uh, well, one of the most interesting things that uh, that happened was at some point uh, there was basically talk of the virus, this viral situation and um, the vaccine nonsense. Oh, did they wear plague masks during the debate? No, they no. did not. Um, although there was plenty of mask shaming going on where Biden basically shamed Trump for having rallies and having people hang out with him. Um, I think it was more cope. I think, you know, Biden realizes no one fucking cares about Joe Biden and uh, no one is going to go see him in person. Um, So he tried to shame Donald Trump for having debates and having friends. Um, Didn't really work. Didn't it kind of fell flat. What what about all the Democratic rallies that have been going on for about three months now and burning uh, half the country? Yeah, all the peaceful protesting. Uh, But there was an interesting moment where, um, you know, Biden has been taking this line that um, he refuses to trust any of the science that comes out of the Trump administration or he refuses to trust a vaccine produced under the Trump administration. Um, And at one point, I think that Trump accidentally let slip what the plan is, Uh, something that did not appear to be public knowledge prior to the debate, and he kind of said in a moment of anger, uh, was that the military is actually planning on distributing the vaccine. He said that uh, uh, 
Well, not not distributing, but he did say that they were going to be one of the first people to be uh, trialed on that, and that's actually not that unusual no, either. He, he made the explicit point that the military is going to be distributing the virus and administering the, the vaccination process across the country. Um, Which, to be fair, if you need like a massive logistical that the CDC doesn't really have indigenous capability to go and uh, do anything. They primarily write grants and they do some analysis, but okay. they they don't have, uh, for instance, I was reading one of the most uh, ominous fucking pieces of information that I've seen in the last few months, which is a pretty high threshold where, uh, apparently, the two vaccine candidates that are uh, kind of being trialed right now, one of them is kind of a more uh, traditional approach, uh, a traditional derivation of a vaccine, and one of them is more highly experimental that's also more fragile and requires more uh, extensive uh, cryogenic uh, equipment. And so the claim was made that, well, a lot of uh, rural areas, uh, you know, flyover country uh, to kind of paint with a broad brush, they don't have the sort of sophisticated equipment uh, to uh, keep these vaccines at cryogenic temperatures that are required. So they're going to get one vaccine and the blue urban areas are going to get a different (laughs) vaccine. Deus Ex really predicted everything, didn't it? Yeah, but yeah, so, yeah, which much. is, uh, that is, uh, that is a unacceptable outcome. I'll just leave it at that. But uh, that's not actually a necessity because it's possible to put whatever equipment you need on a truck. Like generator trucks exist. You can put nuclear warheads on trucks. You can distribute the vaccine at cryogenic uh, temperatures to the various points. It's not like they're manufacturing it on site. It's being manufactured and then distributed in cryogenic trucks. There's no reason that you can't send the same goddamn stuff to Boise and do it literally out of the back of a truck uh, as opposed to, well, surprise, you get something different uh, than the Democratic Party constituency. Right. But the organizations that have access to, okay, we're going to need like 12,000 trucks. At that point, you start talking about the military. And a lot of people don't know that the uh, the U.S. Public Health Service uh, is technically a quasi-military organization. Like they have military rank. Uh, I guess uh, the original thesis was they're going to be operating on battlefields, uh, you know, doing like surgical interventions like sanitation for military camps and things like that in the 1800s. They didn't want them to be shot as spies. So it's like, okie dokie, you get a uniform, you get a rank, whatever. But that's the the sort of organizational capacity that I would expect to be deployed. So I don't necessarily see that as like, you know, we're going to be deploying the 101st uh, Airborne to forcibly vaccinate Des Moines or anything. It's like they have trucks. Nobody else has enough trucks. Now, is this going to be mandatory? Well, that's that was part of the discussion. Well, kind of part of the discussion. And so the broader issue, and I, I did see what you're talking about, Hank. I think it was uh, Mr. Redux that might have pointed that out. Um, that I believe so. 
the different manufacturers of different mRNA uh, vaccines. And that in of itself is an interesting topic that did go undiscussed last night was uh, the actual nature of these vaccines in that the two leading candidates are mRNA and they will, fund, at a basic level, they will be altering your DNA. Um, now the AstraZeneca vaccine, which in the UK, um, both tests uh, so far have produced pretty shocking results. I believe the last guy that got tested developed fibromyalgia and his spine got fucked up and he had nerve ending problems. Um, uh, pretty severe reactions to some of these vaccines. Um, and Moderna, which is producing one of the leading vaccines, apparently, one of these mRNA vaccines. Uh, Moderna, if you've ever looked into them, is a, um, uh, I would describe it as a corrupt company. Um, it is definitely a company driven mostly by financialization. There were a couple stories that came out um, three, four years ago, maybe five years ago, about Moderna and about the people behind it. And generally, the gist of the stories was that much of the R&D, quote unquote, R&D that was being done uh, was effectively going nowhere and was mostly ending in failure. And they had about 30 or 40 different projects under development and almost none of them panned out. And there was a huge amount of money wasted. There were a lot of false results given. Um, there's been, I think, at least some SEC, not if not investigation, at least a, uh, a watchful eye directed at Moderna for some of their recent uh, stock movements and some of the executives sell-offs that have been going on uh, over the past few months. Um, so it is somewhat concerning that that is one of the leading companies apparently participating in this. Um, Johnson & Johnson, uh, a company that was recently found guilty of distributing asbestos to uh, infants, um, is also one of the leading vaccine producers for COVID. Um, so, you know, we have um, the usual suspects, uh, bad actors kind of getting involved in this process, taking government money, hand over fist. Um, and it's not really clear where this is going to come back to the average person in terms of cost. Um, there was some discussion earlier on this year, although it seems to have faded away, of the potentiality for insurance companies to lose an incredible amount of money and where exactly the cost would be made up because some of the vaccines, including um, the remdesivir vaccine, which apparently has fallen out of favor, uh, even though there were quite a few interests backing it in the early days, um, uh, including uh, Fauci, the head of the NIH, um, uh, there were some indications it was going to cost two to three thousand dollars per vaccination and that was gilead and then they came out and said that it's actually possible that remdesivir even if it did work which all the tests seemed to indicate it didn't really work uh, even if it did work you were going to need to receive multiple vaccinations over a period of time like a like a rabies style situation and that would cost about two three thousand dollars each time um, and so if you think that you have to if you have to produce two to three vaccinations per every American, if it becomes mandatory, uh, how that is paid for is anyone's guess. And then not uh, only the cost of the vaccine itself, but the delivery, like, yes. and the right. records tracking, all right. of these things. Like if you add up the aggregate cost, I would be astonished. It's if like a it trillion dollars. Under. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, like you're, you're talking about like a 10K all in 
cost once you figure, okay, well, we need this many people actually sitting there dosing it up. We need this many people to try to track who is actually receiving it and who isn't. We need to build some sort of records system in order to track that, like, 10k per person over <laughs> over 330 million people plus that's uh yeah well that's that's 3 trillion and if that's, you, that's I mean, ridiculous. even in the in the cold blooded when you're looking at the cost benefit trade off of various interventions there are different parts of the government that use different uh accounting standards for what they consider a uh like one human life saved to be worth. Uh, so, I mean, this is a rational thing to do. It's like we can produce, uh, we can produce steel using this thing that emits this gas that kills, you know, shortens everybody's lifespan in the zip code by like 10 minutes in expectation versus this other one that's more expensive that doesn't. And you need to know if that's a good trade-off. And, you know, the estimates kind of, vary by department, but kind of a flat million bucks is kind of the uh, guesstimate that a lot of departments end up using. And if you start looking at the mortality rates uh, by population segments of this particular disease, and then the kind of a number of years saved um, by a mass vaccination program, you need some pretty kind of wacky assumptions uh, in order to make it worthwhile if you are talking about like a $10,000 a dose uh, vaccination program. But like the point it, is... Explain to me say, why it's so expensive. I mean, presumably it's to recoup R&D. Well, no, no one could really understand why Remdesivir was slated to be so expensive. Um, Gilead is a company that like Moderna, you know, has had its fair share of scandal and misrepresentations. Um, uh, obviously, again, as I said, there there were stories as early as April about Fauci's financial involvement and uh, personal gain to be had with the distribution of remdesivir, which is why he wouldn't shut the fuck up about it uh, early on. Uh, I don't know why it was going to cost so much. Um, well, I can tell obviously, you. the the standard answer for this sort of thing is that um, it would have cost a lot at the beginning, and then the cost would have gone down as they've you know optimized the production process and all this. Sort yeah, of uh, we haven't heard that one before. I, I got a joint strike yeah, fighter I mean, to standard, sell you. Standard business school jargon. Uh, didn't really yeah. make a lot of sense why well, it cost so much to begin. This with. is why the pharmaceutical industry is uh so corrupt and so in bed with the federal government because their cost model whenever you have something that has effectively a zero marginal cost to actually produce i mean drug prices in general like the the cost to actually make another dose of any particular drug is minimal all of their overhead is all of their cost is fixed costs, overhead, R&D, and then profits to their uh, their shareholders. So the question is like, okay, I effectively have one customer, the federal government, who ends up underwriting uh, most of this via either directly via Medicare and Medicaid or indirectly via uh, regulation in the insurance markets 
uh, you know, threats of uh, threats of getting shrelled uh, if you happen to piss off the wrong person with your pricing. So it always this boils me to a question. It boils down to a question of like how much you allow them. It's like our goal as a company is to produce unicorns that are wildly expensive. We have one customer, the feds. How do we get the profit that we're aiming for? And the answer is always, well, you've got to know a guy so that you're allowed to charge that much and so that they will actually pay you that much. So it turns into a political calculation. Uh, and if you don't know a guy, uh, like Martin Shkreli evidently didn't know a guy, uh, and tried to pull this with existing drugs, which made the grift a little bit more obvious as opposed to developing uh, the one approved treatment for some rare thing uh, that insurance is mandated to cover and charging $100,000 a dose or whatever, uh, which is not hyperbole, by the way. Some hepatitis treatments uh, go into the six figures. Uh, then you end up getting getting zogged. Well, there's, so, uh, there, there was a good article um, in Smithsonian that I found not too long ago, um, from a couple of years ago, actually, but I found it recently, called The Long Shadow of the 1976 Swine Flu Vaccine Fiasco. Um, and, you know, tell me if this kind of scenario sounds familiar. Um, on February 4th, 1976, a young soldier named David Lewis died of a new form of flu in the middle of the month. F. David Matthews, U.S. Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, announced that an epidemic of the flu that killed Private Lewis was due in the fall. The indication is that we will see a return of the 1918 flu virus that is the most virulent form of flu. He went on, the 1918 outbreak of Spanish flu killed half a million Americans and the upcoming apocalypse was expected to kill a million. The earlier pandemic was another form of swine flu, and researchers at the Centers for Disease Control thought that what was happening could well be a new, even deadlier strain that was genetically close to the 1918 strain. Uh, to avoid an epidemic, the CDC believed that eight, at least 80% of the U.S. population would need to be vaccinated. When they asked Congress for the money to do it, politicians jumped on the potential good press of saving their constituents from the plague. Um, so... In this article, it's also noted, it goes into like the, the World Health Organization actually at the time was um, a bit more wait and see and actually seemed to downplay the potentiality for the virus being bad. Um, now, we've seen that recently, although recently it appears that um, they did it solely at the request of the Chinese government. Now, that doesn't doesn't seem to have been the case at the time, as far as we know. Um uh, but they eventually did their own research. They found the strain of the flu that year was not a repeat or an escalation of the 1918 flu. Um, but as one of the researchers notes, the U.S. government was unstoppable. They had promised a vaccine, so there needed to be a vaccine. Uh, this all happened in the spring with emergency legislation for the National Swine Flu Immunization Program being signed into effect mid-April. By the time immunizations began on October 1st, though, the proposed epidemic had failed to emerge. Although Legionnaire's disease had confusing matters further. With President Ford's re-election campaign looming, the campaign increasingly appeared politically motivated. Uh, and so eventually everyone kind of agreed about later on that year, the whole thing was a fiasco. They did manage to inoculate many, many millions of Americans um, uh, who didn't need the inoculation. Although... 
the real victims of this pandemic were likely the 450-odd people who came down with Guillain-Barre syndrome, a rare neurological disorder, after getting the 1976 flu shot. On its website, the CDC notes that people who got the vaccination did have an increased risk of approximately one additional case of GBS for every 100,000 people who got the vaccine. About 45 million people, I think, got the vaccine. Uh, several theories as to why this happened exist, but the exact reason for this link remains unknown. Um, so, as I was saying before, we've seen some doubt surrounding at least one major pharmaceutical company's vaccine and that it caused severe neurological problems and spinal problems for two of its uh, victims. We've seen another one that completely failed to pan out and was practically lying to investors and to the world about its uh, efficacy once it quietly released the test data, uh, and that would be Gilead producing um, Desivir. Um, and we have kind of a repeat politically and culturally going into uh, you know, this year with 1976. Now, honestly, um, most of the you know, states in this country are either partially opened or just deciding to reopen entirely and have um, effectively given up. Um, there are several at least regional or municipal governments in Europe that have effectively given up and have said that they will not be doing any more closures regardless of how bad it gets, um, if it ever gets bad again. Because I think that there is some recognition that uh, the economic devastation was far worse than they had originally predicted, and that it made people far angrier than they probably had ever predicted. I'm sure they assumed on some level that people would kind of just go along with it, and people did go along with it for like a month and a half. Um, and then when people realized that the economic devastation was too severe and didn't show any signs of stopping, um, generally the tide seemed to have turned and there was more of a, I think, understanding on the part of many in the American public that, um, you know, you, you take a risk every day leaving your home and you can easily get the flu, you can easily get all, all kinds of bacteria and viruses. Uh, I saw a story that last year uh, several people contracted Legionnaire's disease just going to Disneyland. So it is very possible to get sick in real life, and I think enough people. Wow, that was their first mistake. Yeah, well, enough people were were you know mature enough and conscious enough to say that that's just the risk. Um, I think that part of what we're seeing now is a general aversion to risk that's sort of become childish, and it does appear that this is part of a, a very creepy and wider agenda uh, more and more to transform the world. Um, you see this a lot in the rhetoric surrounding the uh, rec planned recovery from the, the Great Reset. Uh, yeah, the Great Reset, um, which was coined ironically last year at a financial conference by uh, two guys from BlackRock. Um, so it's very curious that that is now the uh, term de jour of the global elite. Uh, also the term build back better is now oh God. A, a famous phrase if any of you oh listen God. if any of you listen to the, uh, the to the no agenda show with adam curry and uh, john Dvorak, uh, they actually did a huge segment on the history of this term and they they did a lot of research into how long this term has been used and when it has been used in the past 
And generally, it's used in the past by international bodies when they're describing a ecological devastation of a third world country. So when the Southeast Asian hurricane slammed Indonesia, slammed Myanmar uh, in the early aughts, that was one of the first um, documented usages of the term at a global level for the region, Build Back Better. I thought Another, the first use of the term was in the uh, 1970s film, The Six Million Dollar Man. Really? <laughs> That's the one with we, we can build him stronger. We can oh, build him. okay. Well, there, and then they discovered that um, the term uh, really became popular with the American elite in reference to the 2009, 2011 Haiti, Haitian earthquakes. Um, and we know the story there. The American elite, including the Clinton family, got very involved, uh, very creepily involved in Haiti. And that was uh, the coining of the term uh, in the American mind, build back better. Uh, and now it's utilized by uh, vast swaths of the uh, American liberal elite and global elite, the UN, the WHO. You uh, you see this very consistently, the, the usage of the term build back better. Well, there's a lot of highly overpaid people in this country whose purpose is to find ways to sell people on the glories of poverty. Yes, and and you you know you see the discussion around the virus now transcending the virus, and you saw it a bit last night in the debate um, that it's more about rebuilding American life for the new future, whatever that actually is. Yeah, it's starting to slip. I didn't watch the debate, but I did have one. I want to leave the plague discussion behind, uh, but I wanted there was one question I wanted to ask because uh, Hank, what Hank was saying, got me thinking about it, and that's that the development of any kind of vaccine and. United States is not occurring in isolation. Uh, I understand the Chinese probably do have one, and other European countries are working on one as well. Uh, Putin announced that he's going to take the Russian vaccine before he visits South Korea. So there's there's been a big push. There also have been many pharmaceutical companies in the U.S. that have been vying for the uh, the the crown of who gets to provide it. Right. Yes, and that's that's my specific question, which is that. Does the nature of the, the political economy of the pharmaceutical complex, is it such to where it's just absolutely not possible for one of these firms to not end up getting the contract? Well, it appears that um, Trump constructed this very loosely defined and broad um, Operation Warp Speed, uh, the details of which are not exactly transparent. Um, it was termed or at least branded as the Manhattan Project of our time. And it's not clear how many companies or how many bodies are involved. I, I assume across the medical industrial supply chain, you have every single possible type of company, big or small, getting involved. Multiple departments at large companies getting involved with Everything from distribution, cooling methodology, actual vaccine production, testing, and so forth. Um, so you're probably right in that pretty much anyone probably could have gotten involved. If you go on LinkedIn, there are quite a few companies, uh, large and small, that will show up on your feed if you are associated with anyone at these companies. And they will say, uh, proud to join the fight against COVID. 
And even if they provide some kind of menial piece or small piece of the uh, the medical supply chain, the medical industrial complex, they will announce that they are part of it. I, I assume it is a way to brand and it is also a way but to potentially garner government funds. Which, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, appears to be at least part of yeah. the issue. It looks like the game. Uh, so as for the debate, I understand that they, they brought out uh, Chris Wallace, and so did he do a did he do a good job in performing his function of making sure that the United States presidential debate was perfectly fair to the interna- international Jewish money power? Pretty yeah. much, Chris Wallace. Like there was a lot of Chris Wallace hate on every side. Um, people uh, thought that he was, I guess, excessively combative with uh, with Trump. Which I did not uh, think actually was a downside. Uh, I frankly think that Trump does much better when he's in an adversarial uh, relationship um, to the point where he will kind of go out of his way to uh, solicit an adversarial relationship with the press, uh, even when they're uh, sort of not actually being all that adversarial. So I think that he did a you know, fine job about as well that as could be uh, expected. Um, certainly the left was also uh, pissed off at him uh, for, you know, not taking Trump to task and for allowing him to ride roughshod over Joe Biden, which, I mean, unless you're going to go to the other extreme uh, and just cut his mic, like have both of them in closed cells so they can't uh, shout at each other, like the point of a debate like this, uh, as shown in the Telemundo poll, which showed that uh, of their Spanish-speaking audience, uh, 66% uh, believe that uh, Trump had the better of that debate. The point is to see them in uh, mortal combat with each other. You don't actually need uh, to speak a lick of English in order to figure out what's going on there. And your brain might see uh, two guys talking and it processes what they're talking, but your lizard brain uh, or your monkey brain, I guess, sees two giant apes trying to just see who is a more credible personal leader. And that is the point of this endeavor. So if you're going to try to turn into this Nice little 1950, oh, well, you know, both sides make some great points, and I just wish they could both be president, then you're in the wrong business. That's that's not what this is for. This is internet blood sports to see who can uh, socially dominate the other person. And so I think Trump by that point, Trump saying. obviously, yeah, Trump obviously yeah. accomplished that. Uh, the question, I mean, he didn't... Uh, he did not create a Joe Biden meltdown, which I think was kind of the uh, the brass ring that he was aiming for. Uh, but he did uh, sort of keep Joe Biden on the defensive. Joe Biden did not get any decent licks in. He was like, oh, the president's a racist. He's a liar. Like, these are all things, after calling him Hitler for four years, you're not going to accomplish anything by calling him double Hitler uh, as he's making a fool of you and you're a uh, your crackhead bag man son 
Uh, well, there was a there was a very peculiar moment when Biden tried to say that uh, guys like Trump used to look down on Biden when he was young because he's a quote Irish Catholic, uh, and I found that very hmm. very, very bizarre. Um, yeah, for it, multiple reasons. So number one, number one, Biden is invoking the politics of the late 1950s and early 60s by basically saying, I'm a white guy, but I am opposed to these uh, uptight, rigid wasps that are preventing me from helping you, the white ethnics. And on top of that, Biden is effectively trying to say that Irish Catholics or white ethnic Catholics are effectively not consider like he's trying to create this common causality or common crusade between them and all of the other coalition of the miserable uh the black yeah it's strange because like as last i checked i mean they're, they're not allowed to vote though are they so i mean it's kind of a moot point well and here's the obviously it's retarded but here's the thing um there was a great deal of research done on the different kinds of white Americans and who they preferred and the politics they preferred after the 2016 election. There's also a great deal of research done on different professions and where they rank politically. I think the most right-wing profession in America is car salesmen. Um, according to that <laughs> research, which was pretty funny. Uh, I think real estate agent was also pretty far right. Um, but uh, they pay a lot of taxes. One of the, one of the, some, of, some of the groups that ranked the highest in terms of their Republican turnout in the 2016 election and their general conservative views um, were Irish, broad, you know, I guess broadly the Celtic Americans, Americans descended from the Irish, Scots-Irish, Welsh, Scottish, and so forth, um, Polish, and Spanish generally as well, uh, ranked pretty high in terms of having more conservative values. So your kind of core white ethnic Catholic core, um, uh, the, that, that group came out for Trump in immeasurably high numbers in 2016 and supported his politics. Um, so it is interesting that Biden is, in, you know, kind of in a flailing moment of desperation, trying to invoke the politics that he remembers from his youth, maybe because that's all he can really remember. Um, and in, in a very finagled attempt to say to what I think is an increasing kind of uh, white working class consciousness around Trump, that um, that guys like Trump somehow like don't like the white ethnic vote or something like that, or, or the Catholic uh, Irish vote, um, uh, which is very bizarre. I think I think Trump has appointed now uh, at least two <laughs> Irish Catholics to the uh, to the court, and uh, has certainly made inroads with uh, that constituency uh, multiple times over. If there's any if there's any group of people in America that uh, are increasingly probably not. Uh, in line with the rest of the working class, it is the uh, sort of strangely uh, progressive uh, remnants of the old New England WASP Corps. They are probably the ones who actually do look down on the white ethnics for a variety of reasons. And, uh, you know, Biden's comments are more a projection 
I think, rather than... Uh, and that's always been his electoral strategy, um, is like, I'm comfy Joe, like, uh, lunch pail Joe, just like you, Scranton. And he doesn't have anything to offer those people. But the hope is that he can project enough of kind of a vague association with some imagined okay time that at least they don't turn out and vote uh, for Trump. He's the he's the the hospice care uh, presidential candidate for that same white working class. His job is to keep them comfortable while they they expire peacefully. Right. I, I, I didn't I didn't watch the debate. Um, well, let me just but, say really quick, I, I don't want my comments to be taken out of turn. I, I think that there's, on, on the, the WASP uh, you know, comment, I, there is a great deal of, um, I think, disdain directed at your kind of, uh, you know, manufacturing county, um, good old country WASPs outside of Suffolk County and Massachusetts and all of those, uh, you know, nice family people and New Hampshire and Vermont that went out for Trump and nearly in Maine and so forth. Um, and, and they've certainly been probably, uh, I would say, brutalized at this point by their by their uh, by their kinsfolk, their elite kinsfolk. But it isn't. You know, I thought that was probably the most interesting moment for me was Biden attempting to invoke this like wedge in, you know, the the, <laughs> the working class white core and say that uh, Trump, is, act like Trump is some, <laughs> like, uh, turn-of-the-century Woodrow Wilson figure who's laughing about, uh, you know, dead Irish people or, or something like that. Like, it, it was a very bizarre, and it, and it fell flat. He didn't even try and hammer it home. It was, uh, it was very strange that that's their plot now, is to effectively try and tell the, the whites who vote for Trump that... Uh, uh, maybe at some point, like Trump's grandfather or something, might have like made fun of them at the country club, or I, I don't know. It, it was it was all very weird. Well, the whole thing, this whole debate, it's it's a rear guard action where the goal is to just sort of maintain stasis, while the actual plan, as far as I can tell, is just massively gobsmacking amounts of fraud uh just hundreds of thousands of ballots i just read a story that new york uh state is sending out a additional hundred thousand uh mail-in ballots to people who already received mail-in ballots because the first batch had some sort of unspecified printer error so you get two and I'm sure those will be fairly apportioned uh, to the people who uh, succumbed to that quote-unquote printer error, and there won't be any shenanigans there. Like This is third-world levels of corruption, where you're going to have people literally walking in with buckets full of pieces of paper days after the election, and... Once they're intermixed, there's no remedy. You can't go and sort them out and be like, oh, yeah, all of these are the the ones that were harvested uh, from these gigantic small apartment towers in Minneapolis. Uh, if you watch the latest uh, Project Veritas, a couple of videos. So the fact that there is no 
real remedy for like a successful physical fraud. It's like if you control the printing press and you're just slamming out Jacksons, like you're not counterfeiting at that point. You're just printing money. Like this is getting to the point where they're just printing ballots. They're just printing votes. And the most interesting part of the debate by far uh, was when Trump pointed out that a lot of this has already undertaken because of the massive amounts of mail-in balloting. Like, people being driven uh, on a bus from polling station to polling station and signing in with different names, that's 1950s uh, level of fraud. We're talking mass industrialized scale fraud where the United States Postal Service is the medium to inject it straight into the veins of the Republic and the drugs are already circulating. So his point was that given the amount of shenanigans that have literally already happened, uh, he seems to fully intend to contest the election uh, if there's any prospect of him uh, losing. And because of that mechanic where the voting will happen until there is a democratic outcome in a lot of these blue bug hives, you have to actually contest the election before there's a result undertaken, which is, needless to say, a very unstable circumstance. And it seems to me that uh, the Democrats uh, would have the exact same calculation going on and so both sides have a incentive to escalate, and there's not some magical remedy in the courts as some metaphysical object who can go in and try to get a fair result. Like, the result is already trash. So what do you do? And I think that that is a very dangerous uh, paradigm to be operating in, and one that both candidates have just jumped into with both feet. Well, I, I, I'll be honest, I was a little bit surprised to hear the um, Democratic side starting to uh, knock the notion that a vaccine is uh, something to trust. Uh, they seem to be well, advocating for not vaxxing, and that sort no, of... Well, that, hold hold the... on, Jedediah, hold on. Uh, so... My my wondering is, and this, I, I'll be honest, I didn't see this coming. Um, my wondering is there's something going on with the red side of the deep state with the military that I think had a lot to do with Trump's election to begin with. And I don't know if they're looking at this and, and basically wargaming out the possibility that they need to start using the military after this thing. Um, but the riots have been, I think, a demonstration of what is possible and an intimidation tactic of the left. And we can be rest assured that if Trump wins again, there's going to be more of that. And I don't know if the military is not going to be involved after that. Even not being involved is involvement. Like you if you have a capability and you're not using it, that is a choice to take that capability out of play. So, I mean, there's, there's no such thing as uninvolved if 
somebody asks you to do something and you decline or they don't ask you because they know that you are going to decline to do something. So it's, it's specious to say like, Oh, we won't do this. We won't do that. Like that indicates a, you know, their own fig leaf of, uh, uninvolvement and not just them but like every actor so you know you're talking about local police departments state uh state patrols the various uh federal agencies um like the uh the border patrol the u.s marshals the fbi like anybody with a warm body at their disposal has a part to play in this drama either by their presence or by their absence I will say that I don't think that they're necessarily being like anti-vax. I think that it's just it's pure sort of political pill pull where they're trying to uh, say it's mostly to their own base that uh, the vaccine produced under Trump is bad for some reason. And you shouldn't take it because uh, the right scientists haven't been able to look at it. Um, it's just, I mean, I don't really know who this appeals to other than a very delimited, uh, kind of, uh, inner metro area core that thinks that they're scientists, certainly loves the, uh, I fucking love science tier, uh, redditisms, but that seemed to be the conceit. It wasn't necessarily that they're anti-vax or that they're even mad about yeah, vaccinating. The, the point is to keep the issue in play until right. after the election. Right. It, because it's talk about what they will or won't do, which is not credible. Right. So the sum total of their quote-unquote anti-vax stuff is, well, don't get your hopes up because Orange Man is still bad and he's probably going to do something bad. So... Don't trust that he's going to do a good thing because he only does bad things because he's the bad orange man. Yeah. Well, speaking of Reddit, widespread fraud, abuse, and corruption, money laundering schemes, etc. Uh, Hans and I watched a movie. Uh, Adam, did you watch this movie too? I know Hank, you did not. But did you see the movie, Adam? Uh, regretfully, I have not seen this. It's a Michael Moore joint. Okay. Is that right? Okay. Well, yeah, so Hans and I watched a movie, and the movie was produced by Michael Moore. It was not directed by Michael Moore, but it was produced and presumably funded by Michael Moore as well. Uh, Hans recommended the film. I had not heard of it, and when I looked uh, online to watch it, I saw that there was a lot of... uh, controversy surrounding this and after watching it i do understand why so uh the people that it seemed to piss off are actually a lot of the right people which is kind of surprising considering we are talking about a michael moore joint right so yeah i mean it was directed by one of his friends a man named jeff gibbs uh, a fellow michiganer um And uh, Jeff Gibbs is interesting. He is one of these old school um, sort of hardcore environmental activists. Uh, You know, early on in the documentary, he basically admits to uh, multiple felonies (laughs) done in the name of environmental. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Yeah, he admits to uh, uh, putting sand in a a, uh, tractor. 
a bulldozer or something. Yeah, and he says it very in a very cavalier way. Um, so he he's one of these older um, activist types, more direct action types, who grew up and um, settled down a bit, but remained um, somewhat prominent, I think, and somewhat well known uh, in the environmental sphere. Although I, I had never heard of him before this, but um, apparently within that sphere, he was well known enough to get these interviews that he, he has throughout the film. And uh, the film is called Planet of the Humans, by the way, and it was released uh, April 21st this year. Uh, very strangely, uh, there was not a lot of press about it before its release, it just sort of um, popped up on YouTube. And um, it's about an hour and a half. I would, at the outset, I would recommend watching it only uh, to understand some controversy that appears to be growing within the broader environmental uh, world within this uh, country in particular. Um, uh, it, it highlights basically a study of both the environmental movement in of itself and various, um, as Nick said, uh, kinds of fraud, waste, abuse, and branding done in the name of environmentalism by um, large and small-scale corporate entities in uh, in the United States over the last couple decades, uh, more so since really the 90s is when this appears to have uh, started to kick off. It, um, it helps to validate. I, I have a, a general working rule that no matter really where you come from, if you genuinely care about any given thing enough, you're going to run afoul of the system. Right. Uh, there are very few exceptions to that, but there are some. Well, there was and, a great example recently. Um, John Muir, uh, one of this country's uh, greatest environmentalists, conservationist. Conservationist. I've heard naturalist, but there's you know everybody wants to claim him, so there's probably different words for it. A um, a man of the. Um, sort of the very, very powerful uh, sort of Roosevelt and Gilded Age uh, conservationism. Uh, John Muir was recently canceled by the Sierra Club, uh, which actually does um, show up many times in Planet Yeah, the Sierra Club is a definite, and in some ways it's an easy target. It is an easy um, target. Because it really, I mean, what is the Sierra Club, but basically uh, some kind of property holding company? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's what they do is they're, they're able to, you know, get various protections for various, you know, very uh, pristine pieces of land. And eventually uh, they get to sell those at a much higher, higher value than they bought them for, yes. acquired them for, or were gifted them for, or what have you. Yeah. Uh, but recently, John Muir was canceled by the Sierra Club uh, for, uh, you know, accusations of him being a, uh, a racist. And when you actually look into the early environmental movement in this country, or I guess conservation movement, you do find people like uh, Madison Grant, uh, one of the greatest authors I've ever read. He wrote uh, many great works, uh, The Passing of the Great Race and uh, Conquest of a Continent, um, but also did an immense amount of zoological work uh, and uh, geological studies. Uh, he wrote on the origin and relationship of the large mammals of North America, saving the redwoods, the Rocky Mountain goat, early history of Glacier National Park, uh, and so forth. Uh, you had people like Henry Fairfield Osborne, 
from a very prominent uh, family. He was the man who found and uh, helped name the uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex and the Velociraptor, um, Charles M. Gotha, so on and so forth. You had a, a lot of these men around the turn of the 20th century who uh, contributed greatly to the conservationist cause, and they actually achieved their goals. They did end up uh, opening many national parks, working with uh, the Roosevelt family, working with multiple American presidents, and uh, they even passed all kinds of legislation. They spoke out against industrial abuse, um, and many of these men were what I guess you would consider landed aristocrats in America. Uh, but they put their money where their mouth was, and, and they uh, they certainly were uh, – uh, very committed to their cause, and uh, we're not necessarily real phonies. Um, but American environmentalism was mentioned in the debate last night, and it was mentioned as the chief cause of concern for the suburbs. Um, uh, strangely enough, I don't know how that got slipped in there. Um, and it has been, ever since the onset of this virus, it has been the uh, the underlying tone of the whole virus itself is that actually – the environment is responsible for the virus, and who is responsible for making the environment bad? Well, obviously, uh, people are bad. So people are the reason why there's a virus. Um, and it's interesting that the film, which apparently it seems to have been produced over the last several years, very quietly and slowly, was released not long after uh, sort of worldwide lockdowns went into effect, uh, especially for the United States. Yeah, it was supposed to be, the release is supposed to coincide with uh, Earth Day, which is something that only about maybe a quarter of the population of America is vaguely aware exists. Well, and it's funny that Earth Day, you know, I, the history of Earth Day, um, <laughs> it did not used to be part of the uh, global uh, kill whitey agenda. It, uh, it was actually pretty much uh, a product of uh you know sleepy california suburbs uh back in the day in, in 1970 um after the santa barbara oil spill i think was what kind of brought about it and there was a lot of bipartisan support um of course uh, our main man uh dr professor richard millhouse nixon was president and uh, he was quite the environmentalist um and there was a i think a fervor in the country that um the environment was slowly starting to degrade, you know, the, the processes of the Gilded Age and the post-war industrial uh, growth had led to things like acid rain, very polluted rivers, the infamous uh, smog basin of Los Angeles. Um, and I think that people generally wanted to rally around taking very basic measures to keep the environment a little bit more serene and uh, not poison everyone in the process. Well, this was a point in the debates where Trump was framing himself as a conservationist in favor of uh, the cleanest water, the cleanest air, pristine, absolutely transparent. Right. Uh, as opposed to let's destroy the entire economy because economic activity is ipso facto evil. Right. And so the film, um, I would say, and Nick, let me know if you feel like this is accurate. It um, it comes from what is often, I think, derided, although I don't know why it's a derision, uh, the environmental inactivist crowd. And it's basically a group of 
anthropologists, ecologists, electrical and environmental engineers, and so forth, who have a general framework of an idea that effectively the mainline environmental movement is actually part of corporatism and therefore is part of the industrial civilization, is therefore not actually doing anything to save the planet or save the human race. Um, and that actually the best thing to do is to let it all kind of collapse because there doesn't seem to be any appetite for what they think is required, which is, of course, population growth control, uh, excessive measures on personal consumption and, and so forth. They're very explicit that uh, this is what's required, but that uh, no one will go for it. So the best thing to do is kind of let it all fall apart. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England mountain green? And was the holy lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? And did the countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here among these dark satanic mills? Uh, yeah, I, I think that if you could sum up the general thesis of the film is that mainline environmentalism is a panacea. You know, I mean, my overall take, I thought it was I thought it was interesting because is going after people. I think he's unaware that there exists any kind of right wing conservationist impulse and that the American right is, you know, the Koch brothers come up, of course. I think he even refers to them as the devil himself or the devils themselves, I think was the quote from the film. So it's he's somebody who's clearly rooted in like boomer lib theology. I mean, it just he probably hasn't really considered anything from the right in his entire life in any serious way, but he seems like a well-meaning lib for what that's worth. I think it's instructive to look. Um, I looked at Jacobin, which can always be counted on for really strained, bad takes. I can read a bit of their review. They, they panned it majorly and they describe it as, so they say, in a swerve toward the Malthusian politics of degrowth and remarkably even embracing the fringe ideology of anti-civilization, Planet of the Humans declares that the problems caused by industrial civilization cannot be solved by industrial civilization. And, I mean, these are points that have been made for a long time when it comes to this, the whole, like, the, the green, uh, green capitalism kind of shit. I mean, take, like... You know, a Prius, like the Prius battery is lithium ion. It's mined in open pit mines. I mean, how do you charge an electric car? Did you guys see, not to derail completely, I'll give you my full take on the movie, but did you, I might as well just say this now, did you see, a friend of mine sent me this, California is, uh, Newsom pledged to ban the sale of yep. petrol-powered automobiles in 15, in 15 years. 20, Which 2035. Is, so this, there's this, there's this pattern where... Uh, California does something completely insane that they don't actually intend on enforcing. People say that's completely insane. You have no intent of enforcing this. They walk it back and then they do it uh, in a more limited form that just purely makes things worse uh, without uh, whatever putative advantages the original policy was going to have. They, they do this just constantly. Uh, if yeah. you've ever driven down uh, El Camino Real in uh, 
in uh, the Bay Area, like every block, there's a couple of auto parts stores. I've never seen a denser concentration of uh, auto parts stores anywhere in the country. It's it's crazy. I don't know why this is, uh, but it's the King's it's, Highway. Yeah, it's not. Uh, I mean, it, it kind of makes sense. Uh, people need to have cars in order to get around because the, there is no meaningful public transit and cars last forever. So there's always something that needs to be fixed on your, you know, 2003 Toyota Corolla or whatever. Uh, but it's obviously a impractical uh, proposal. All it really means is we're going to make it a huge pain in the ass to have a car, which is already yeah. in the cards. Like, I mean, imagine the amount of forms and bribery that you have to undertake in order to have a car in, like, for instance, Mexico. Uh, it's a huge pain in the ass. Uh, so, I mean, I would assume that that is sort of what that policy boils down to, not some sort of yay Teslas for everyone. Which, by the way, yeah. they don't actually have the capacity to charge. Like, physically, they do not have the electrical capacity to absorb, like, the 10% extra electricity required all kicking in as everybody gets home at the end of the day. Like, that's it's not physically possible for them to do that. Okay, and so this is the, the general thesis of the film, is that a lot of these renewable energy sources... Uh, as they would call them, renewable. Uh, wind, solar, uh, the hilariously named biofuel. Uh, biomass. Biomass. Biomass, <laughs> yeah, which is, which is just like it's burning. It, well, that's, that's just, like yeah, wood, it's, right? It's just, yeah, it's just burning. It's just burning wood, right? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a very inefficient energy source, and, but it has bio in it, which is, and it's cutting down trees, which is the whole point, right? So... Uh, the idea was is that the uh, you know the capital infrastructure that goes into these uh, you know uh, solar panels etc. I mean you need rare earth minerals in order to make these so this you're still going to be mining and uh, you're not going to be able to even if you ran a, a electric grid or whatever on one of these energy sources you're still going to need something like natural gas or you know petrol or whatever to supplement it because these things they they're not constant energy sources you know if the wind's not there it's not producing energy right if the sun's not there it's not producing energy and then this the battery storage on them is not enough et cetera, et cetera. this is outside of my wheelhouse as far as the actual uh, engineering aspects of this but these are things that also you can understand from a simple perspective you don't get something for nothing right and that's how energy works and the point that he arrives at uh, is not an unfamiliar one, and it's basically that, well, looks like the solution is obviously going to have to be a reduction in consumption and or population. Uh, others have arrived at this, and it's not exact. I mean, it's kind of a natural conclusion, I, I guess. I can think how, of one how, guy yes, in particular on. who arrived. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there's that, but it brings me to my main criticism of the film. It, it's the... And the film even uses the term elephant in the room several times, which is ironic because there's a, a huge fucking elephant in this room and it's nuclear power. It yeah. is not mentioned once in the film. Wow. 
That's and a huge what oversight. Never mentioned once is the the collapse in the nuclear power industry in America, which I will remind everyone was the cause de jour of the broader environmental movement, the left in this country, the left globally throughout the 1970s and 80s, uh, but really the 70s until Three Mile Island, I guess. Um, it was the cause de jour for uh, everything was more nuclear power, more nuclear power. Everyone was talking about the beneficiary of nuclear power. There was a lot of early discussion on the potential. That, that was the fifties. Well, no, well, well into the seventies. This was the, this became the rallying call of the left was nuclear power, clean energy. And, and there was always talk early on of the advent of fusion, uh, nuclear power, which we're still waiting for. Um, and I think that at some point the left basically for one reason or another, it's implied in the film that the mainline environmental movement was bought off, um, to not support this, uh, or at least to support very particular sources of energy. Um, but it's not really made clear at all, which is very strange. You're right. Uh, what happened to nuclear? What happened to the promise of the atom? as it was thought of, uh, as Adam said, in the 50s, for many decades in this country after World War II. Was, uh, nuclear what power. happened is that it works. As was about to say. That's the big problem with it. <laughs> if, if you have, like, environmentalism with a big E, uh, big environmentalism, uh, is predicated on... Uh, basically a ideology that privileges a particular power structure in order to go full Foucault. And the environmentalists, uh, big E there, uh, are not empowered by uh, taking your natural gas and coal-fired power plants and replacing them with nuclear. That just puts a different set of nerds in charge uh, that have the same regulatory hookups uh, and operate for decades at a stretch with minimal intervention required. Uh, if you, <laughs> if your goal is to put big E environmentalists in charge, then the way that you bootstrap that power is to put them in charge of a lot of stuff where they can reinforce their authority by doing things like issuing carve-outs to things that are manifestly insane, like banning internal combustion engines in uh, California. So if you, what you want to do is you want to create a problem and you want it to be as big of a problem as possible so that you can be empowered to fix the problem and everything that you don't fix about the problem is an excuse for an additional power grant. Like this is just classic stuff. Uh, it seems very like... 2001 vintage hey man maybe terrorism is just an excuse for control man but it recognizes a dynamic that does in fact exist uh, every one of these regulations empowers a regulator and it empowers actually industries that have favorable relationships with the regulators. So it's a very self-licking lollipop that 
uh, gets dry and hairy, I guess, if there are actual easy solutions to the supposed problem. Yeah, well, and there, there are many... So go ahead, Adam, actually. Oh, well, thanks. Uh, yeah, I was just going to mention briefly, it, it sounds like the real goal is power, as is many things in our cynical world, and the vector for getting it is victimhood status. And you can no longer be a victim if somebody solves your problem. Uh, so therefore, there is no solution. The solution is, listen to me, I'm going to bitch and moan about everything, and you're going to comply, and you're going to give me regulatory and otherwise larger and more invasive powers into your life. So my other take on the film is that it, it does highlight, I think, something that is a little bit interesting going on with some of the old school American left. And that is that some of them maybe are starting to notice the phenomenon that's happened in the past, uh, I mean, 15 years. I, I, I consider in my, my time scale, I consider the uh, WTO riots in Seattle to be the last gasp of the actual American left. So whatever, however much time has taken place since then, whatever, 20, 23 years. Uh, I don't know, like, I it, think that a lot of the same, I don't think that it's the actual left versus a new left. I think that it's basically the same people that realized there was more gravy inside yeah, oh of yeah. that arrangement than outside. Oh, no, of I'm, I'm equally cynical. However, it's just that there were some maybe more true believers who got left behind by this because what's happened is that corporate America has undergone you know, two really serious rebrandings. And the, I think the green stuff came first and then the, the new woke stuff is, yes. is the next installment of that. But the green stuff was the one that was, it, it, it's how we learned to stop worrying and love Exxon Mobil, you know, <laughs> or in the case of, uh, California, Chevron and PG and E. Well, yeah. And these are the people on the, the film points out that these are the corporate backers. I mean, Caterpillar, like Exxon Mobil, BP, even Goldman Sachs, yeah, Goldman it, Sachs. These are the corporate backers of these environmental organizations. Right. And I mean, do they actually use the term greenwashing? Uh, no, not in the film, nor do they use my favorite term, which is watermelon green on the outside, red on the inside. <laughs> well, Nick, why don't you explain what that means? I've heard that before, but I think it's a good analogy. Uh, well, I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory, but the, the environmentalism is, is a cloak for, I, I'm not going to say these people are necessarily communists because that isn't accurate, but it's an outward cloak for a political ideology that in fact has very little to do with, you know, the earth ball. Yeah. I mean, so what do you kind of get from the film that is actually interesting, maybe worthwhile, is it presents, at the very least, a uh, a takedown of um, the 350 organization led by um, a very pasty, uh, freakish man named Bill McKibben, um, who uh, partners with Goldman Sachs, partners with the Bloomberg Fund for Innovation... <laughs> Partner. He, he reminded me of uh, Michael Shermer. Yeah, he he's uh, he's quite the creature. Uh, he partners with um, 
Oh my God! Like Richard Branson, and, and of course is well. The, the funniest is when a journalist was asking him where he got his funding from, and yeah. he took you know, he couldn't answer the question obviously, and eventually came to some answer like, uh, yeah, there's some some guys in Sweden. They that's one of our I think last <laughs> time I checked is our major funder, and yeah. the journalist asked him uh, like, well, what about the Rockefeller Foundation? Have you gotten any money from them? And he's like, oh yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's been. A, been a while i i haven't really looked at uh where money comes from it's like bro it'd be nice to have those kinds of problems eh yeah so you, you mean you get this idea that mckibben is um sort of the favorite target of this old school left and um a newer breed of uh of of left-wing uh, environmental scientists who, uh, like one of the prominent um, uh, uh, researchers in the film goes by the name Ozzy or something like that. He um, he features very prominently. He's an environmental scientist, and he sort of uh, trots the country with Gibbs. They go to uh, a, a plant just outside Las Vegas. They go to Daggett, California. Um, they go to North Carolina. Uh, they go, you know, all over. And generally the impression you get is that this newer breed as well as this older breed, look at McKibben along with the grassroots in places like um, uh, the Northern Kingdom of Vermont and in uh, Michigan and so forth as a sellout and as a man who is basically providing branding for the deforestation uh, in order to satisfy various kinds of green energy utilization campaigns or projects. So there's a prominent example featured early on where Gibbs is hanging out with a bunch of, uh, uh, I don't know, forest dwellers in northern Vermont who um, basically, uh, you know, they're walking up this nice little creek. People who wear Birkenstocks. Yes, they're walking up this nice little creek and they come upon a ridge and they look over the ridge and there's a massive clearing all of a sudden. It looks like the surface of the moon. And they disclose what the intended project is for, and it's for the construction of windmills. And the environmental activists from the northern Vermont are distraught. I mean, they're distraught. They look like they're about to cry because they're talking about how they remember growing up there. And they remember going fishing and hiking and hanging out with friends. And it's been completely wiped out. They, they, they bulldozed half a mountain to make room yeah. for this thing windmills are fucking terrible yeah like so if you look at the shipping process alone in order to get like one blade fits on a truck you have a bundle of them that fits on one particular uh barge usually uh that's able to be offloaded from the factory through intermodal one fucking blade at a time onto the barge and then shipped one gigantic truck with a lead vehicle and a following vehicle out to the fucking construction site, which is a hill in the middle of nowhere. They have to bulldoze the thing. They have to bring in concrete trucks. They've got to bring in welders and construction equipment. They've got to put in the fucking power lines yeah. And then turns out these things do not last forever. They're made of aluminum. Like you can do a lot of cool shit with aluminum, 
but it doesn't last forever. There's no like, ah, yes, my 2,000-year-old Roman windmill still in operation, still chugging along. And, and by the so, way... When they get when they get like fucking bird strikes, when they get lightning strikes, yeah. you take this whole fucking blade and you do the whole thing in reverse where you bring it to a gigantic dumpster, you bring it to a fucking landfill, and you bury it. Like, it's a giant goddamn aluminum can where the end resting place is a fucking dumpster. Yeah. Well, and the whole process you described is powered by fossil fuels. Well, and yes, of course, and because you has... need energy density in order to get the large quantities of aluminum required and to get the power lines out to the middle of nowhere. Like you can actually put a power plant, you know, you don't want to put it in the middle of Manhattan because that real estate is fairly valuable, but you can put it at like the nearest previous cornfield to Manhattan and then you run the lines into Manhattan, as opposed to, well, there are these specific locations that have the correct weather patterns, and we've got to now run these lines. We have to have logistics and infrastructure in order to support this to actually get this into the grid. And then we've got to get maintenance guys in and out of there. Like, logistics matter. They matter a lot. How close you are to your factors of production is hugely important if you're trying to have a sustainable and defensible interconnected logistical network. So, I mean, there are situations where this can make sense if you have, for instance, you know, off the coast of Cape Cod, and it's reasonably close to a populated area, you're building it on a concrete pier, like it's, you know, the logistics make sense. Uh, and when the thing decays, you can probably just dump it in the ocean uh, because, you know, a chunk of aluminum at the bottom of the ocean, that's just an artificial reef at that point. So there are situations where this can make sense. Going and plunking a bunch of them down on top of a mountain uh, at the highest point in California that you can find is retarded. Well, they're, they're, those are good examples. Uh, and actually, back in the 70s, they built a huge number of them. Um, I think it's the Altamont Pass in California during the energy crisis. And I think uh, shortly thereafter, or at least 10 plus years after that, uh, they were deactivated because they were no longer economically worthwhile to even maintain. So if you drive through there, there's actually a lot of them just sitting there uh solid like they, they i don't know if they've rusted if they're made out of aluminum but probably the poles or some of that some of the uh, the bearings are made out of steel and so they've actually uh rusted shut and they no longer rotate anymore um there's also a very funny video of donald trump before he was president going over to scotland uh talking to either the scottish parliament or some regional element of the scottish government about offshore wind farms off the coast of his uh, planned golf course. And he spends about three or four hours basically arguing with the, uh, the officials about why it's a bad idea to, to build wind. And again, this is before he became president. He was known for this sort of thing. But if you're sort of a political economy junkie, uh, highly recommend that video. Uh, and then the last uh, thing I'd like to say is wind... Uh, in Vermont, in the middle of a nowhere where you have to actually build your own road and haul up a gigantic uh, 
set of blades and pork concrete foundations probably doesn't make any sense. And I have a feeling that a lot of that was driven by some politician who wanted to make a name for uh, him or herself about being environmentally progressive and we Vermonters are going to create clean energy, et cetera, as opposed to just importing it from Canada where they have, you know, hydroelectric dams or something. Uh, but it does seem to make sense. I haven't looked at the numbers, but I have read articles about people uh, projecting that uh, parts of the United States are actually extremely economically conducive to building wind power generation plants, uh, specifically in the Great Plains states where everything is very flat. Uh, it's very accessible to get to where you want to build. It's already cleared out. Uh, it's basically farmland. So you're talking about the Dakotas, you're talking about Kansas, Nebraska, and they get a lot of wind. I mean, this is where, uh, you know, Wizard of Oz was uh, centered, where they had a massive tornado. And if you drive uh, down that highway that, that divides the country in half, uh, that was the first piece of the interstate highway system that Eisenhower initiated uh, in Kansas. He was from Kansas, so they, they built a plaque for this. If you drive down that in Kansas at night, it is one of the spookiest things you'll ever see. You'll see basically a cascade of red lights going from where you are to the horizon. And all those lights are basically windmills uh, so that airplanes don't run into them. They put these warning lights on them. Uh, and during the day you see them, I mean, they're, they're just these gigantic columns that farmers probably get paid a rent to uh, have constructed there. And, uh, I, I would say that wouldn't, would arguably make the most sense putting it in a windy area where, you know, maintenance is low. Uh, I think it, it's probably a viable part of the solution, but energy is, is not like you can just pick one or the other. I think it has always been, and probably always will be a mixed bag where you have to make decisions about what makes the most sense for your locale, uh, whether you actually generate it yourself or whether you import it, uh, and whether it, it's clean or not. Those are all trade-offs and it cannot be, uh, frankly, from a, just a risk management standpoint, I don't think you should have one solution fits all. I think you should have a portfolio just like in investing. You, you need to know, uh, that you're going to have backups to this very essential, uh, part of life in our modern society and civilization where you need power for just about everything. And you need a, a redundant grid that has uh, fallbacks upon fallbacks, whether it's for uh, cost reasons or safety reasons or just reliability reasons. I think it's, it's important to underscore the fact that you cannot just have solar panels or whatnot uh, du jour. You, you need to have a very um, holistic approach to this. That's one of the themes that the film is largely this guy, Jeff Gibbs, putting on the liberal version of the skull mask and declaring that there's no technical solution. Uh, that that's kind of the gist of it. And the other one that he points out, another running theme is that there is absolutely zero follow through on these projects by these organizations. So somebody comes in, cashes in on their state Gibbs by building a you know, whatever solar or, or wind. And then they come back and no one, no one's followed through on this. No one's really checked in to see, cause these are largely, you know, high, they, these are hypotheses being tested. It's like, would this work? I mean, some people are well aware that no, they won't work, but maybe, you know, some good natured people are like, okay, you know, we can try this. Hopefully this, this works. No one, no one actually, that those people don't exist. And so when they go to some of these old uh, installations, they find that they've basically been scrapped. <laughs> they've you know the people who made money off of them made money off of them and the people who could do their you know 
ribbon cutting jerk off ceremony uh, have done that. So all, everything of actual value to everyone involved has already been squeezed out of these, and they're they're just left to as you know scrapyards basically. Well, yeah, the film um, it does a great job to of exploring the materials engineering actually required for a lot of these projects. One of the things it highlights is the intense energy requirements for actually smelting and crafting aluminum. It's about eight times the amount of energy required to actually produce steel. So you're Which talking- is why they build the, by, they build aluminum foundries where there's essentially free power. Yeah, so there, there is- Yeah, Hy- hydroelectricity is usually the, the, the best one, like Russia. Hydro and geothermal. Know. Yeah. Like well, uh, Iceland, Iceland. Uh, the TVA. Um, well, yeah, Iceland, uh, if you've ever been to Iceland, you will see the, uh, uh, if you ever go to some of the thermal springs in the distance, you will see massive aluminum smelting plants, uh, feeding off of that sweet geothermal energy. Um, and they are very proficient, but the film does explore as well, has a great montage that goes on for a few minutes of the actual supply chain process for the production of windmills. Um, and there was a great article that came out defending the film and actually talking about the campaign against it in the gray zone. Um, I had never been to this website until someone mentioned it. This article came out a few weeks ago, actually, uh, and it was written by a man named Max Blumenthal, uh, green billionaires behind professional activist network that led suppression of planet of the humans documentary. Now the basic story here, is that not long after the film was released on YouTube, it did get taken down. And it was taken down because there was a, a uh, an environmental activist whose footage was used, a man named Toby Smith, uh, did have footage that was used, and he filed a copyright claim after being asked to by a man named Josh Fox, who was one of these professional, more professional climate activists that led the campaign against the film. And I allegedly pressured Michael Moore to take his name off of it. Now, Max Blumenthal, just as a digression, is a very interesting guy. He is an interesting um, guy. Yeah, yeah. He's he's worth uh, it's worth looking into his body of uh, his body of work. Uh, he's one of these kind of uh, independent journalists that actually, you know, he's got a angle, but he makes his angle relatively clear, uh, and he talks about uh, you know he's he's like a regular on RT. Uh, yeah. So, you know, well, there, there's there's uh, one great passage here. Uh, and, and honestly, this docu this this article is a great addendum to the film itself. It both defends the film against its accusations and it actually provides a lot of uh, great information on its own. Um, Bill McKibben, the founder of 350.org and the guru of climate justice activism, is seen throughout Planet of the Humans consorting with Wall Street executives and pushing fossil fuel divestment campaigns that enable powerful institutions to reshuffle their assets into plastics and mining while burnishing their image. McKibben has even called for environmentalists to cooperate with the Pentagon, one of the world's worst polluters and greatest exporters of violence, because, quote, when it speaks frankly, it has the potential to reach Americans who won't listen to scientists. Perhaps the most provocative critique contained in Planet of the Humans was the portrayal of full-time climate warriors like McKibben as de facto lobbyists for green tech billionaires and Wall Street investors determined to get their hands on the whopping $50 trillion profit opportunity that a full transition to renewable tech represents. 
So by the way, the 50, 40 to $50 trillion profit opportunity figure is cited in the documentary, uh, and it's cited in, an, in a, an archival footage that was uncovered by Gibbs of this conference that McKibben did with a former CEO from Goldman Sachs. And it was the former CEO of Goldman Sachs, this asset management group for them, that talked about the potential 40 to $50 trillion windfall in profit if they could get green energy online. Which uh, this is a this is a standard grift uh, that you see, for instance, in carbon uh, carbon markets, which you don't hear a lot of that uh, anymore as kind of a proposed solution. I think that we're we're you know we've transitioned away from uh, new economic policy uh, style planning to just full on uh, green Stalinism, uh, but. That was uh, and still is actually a way that certain people make tremendous amounts of money through pure regulatory arbitrage where it's like, yeah, well, you know, I've got a guy uh, in Bolivia who, uh, you know, I paid him to plant all these trees and I've got all the paper, proper paperwork. So please, sir, can I get my uh, my credit uh, so that I can offset that against uh, some effective tax that anyone uh, building a factory in California is required to pay uh, into their internal captive shitty carbon market. Right. Well, it goes into the supposed ringleader, a man named uh, Josh Fox. Uh, quite the interesting physiognomy on this character. I'll let you guys imagine what I'm talking about. Uh, and he is cited by Blumenthal, the Oscar-nominated director of the film Gasland, which highlighted the destructive practices inherent to hydraulic fracking. Fox launched the campaign with a sign-on letter calling for the documentary to be retracted. Then, in an incendiary takedown published in The Nation, <laughs> he branded Michael Moore, quote, the new flack for oil and gas, quote, a racist, quote, an eco-fascist for producing the film. <laughs> As videographer Matt Orfalia reported, Fox's crusade began the night Moore's film was released with an unhinged mass email to online publishers that blasted the documentary as, quote, and this is in all caps, a gigantic crock of shit. Fox commanded, it must come down off your pages immediately. Uh, next, Fox organized a sign-on letter demanding the film, quote, be retracted by its creators and distributors in an apology rendered for its misleading content. Among the letter's signatories was academic and renewables advocate Leah C. Stokes, another physiognomy you guys would be probably unsurprised by, who proclaimed her wish in an article in Vox that, quote, this film be buried. Few will watch or remember it. Jesus, uh, quite the... It's a little bit yeah, on the nose. Usually there's <laughs> yeah. a little bit more uh, discretion. Yeah. yeah, it's strange, too, because this, I mean, like the Jacobin article I mentioned earlier, uh, it makes it makes interesting points as well. I mean, Jacobin's weird like that. Uh, they, they also point out the nuclear omission, uh, and they conclude with the following... Uh, you might even go so far as to say that they're distracting us from the problem of markets and targeting growth instead. Michael Moore and Jeff Gibbs inadvertently just made their most neoliberal film of their career. So long as Moore, Gibbs, 
and the activists inspired by Malthusian thinking are f focused on trying to get the working class to reduce their already inadequate consumption or have fewer children declaring on their banners, follow me, I promise you less, the fossil fuel companies will be quite content that they're in no danger at all. And I would, I mean, they, I always struggle with these people. I mean, because of course, they're big proponents of things like abortion. And so when they say these things, like have fewer children, this uh, treated with a grain of salt, but uh, okay. I... It does, they make a, it does get more interesting in that um, it goes on. So as the attacks on Planet of the Human snowball, director Jeff Gibbs attempted to defend his film following an article at The Guardian branding the film as, quote, dangerous. Gibbs emailed the paper's opinion editors requesting a right of reply. He told me they never responded. However, just hours after Toby Smith's politically motivated copyright claim prompted YouTube to remove the documentary – he said the Guardian reached out to him for comment. How'd they catch that so early, he wondered. I mean, what's really fascinating here is the accusation of Gibbs being a neo-lib is ironic in that the primary tentacles of the neo-lib architecture in places like The Nation, in places like The Guardian, and Oscar-nominated filmmakers came out to attack the film. So the, the, they know that this branding of, you know, being called a neoliberal is very dangerous and it, it can like severely fuck you in these circles. These people literally are the neoliberals. They, you know, they quite literally are, but they are. Well, yeah, I mean, of being if you ask one of these Jacobin types what their position on the industrialization of the third world is, they're going to they're going to give it their full support. I mean, what, what could be more neoliberal than this? Yeah, so there was there was a man, there was a few, there were a few people that tried to defend Gibbs, that tried to come out and help him. Uh, a few left-wing journalists tried to push back, but in almost every case, they were spiked by editors at ostensibly progressive journals. Christopher Ketchum, author of This Land, How Cowboys, Capitalism, and Corruption Are Ruining the American West, was among those unable to find a venue. I have come across very few editors radical enough to have the exceedingly difficult conversation about the downscaling, simplification, and the turn in the developed world toward diminished affluence that a 100% renewable energy system will necessarily entail. You see, they have to believe that they can keep their carbon-subsidized entitlements, their toys, their leisure travel, no behavioral changes or limits needed, and it will all be green and, quote, sustainable. Naomi Klein, perhaps the most prominent left-wing writer on climate-related issues, did not weigh in to defend the movie. Instead, the Intercept columnist, social activist, and Gloria Steinem Endowed Chair in Media, Culture, and Feminist Studies at Rutgers University <laughs> was an Rutgers. early participant in the campaign to suppress the film. And according to McKibben, Naomi Klein had in fact taken more aside in an MSNBC green room <laughs> to lobby him against punishing the film. <laughs> that is that so, is really interesting. So what's really yeah. going on here? Because my guess is that when there's this number of people involved in a tiff like this, it's not a genuine political disagreement, but it's either somebody's mule ticket um, was threatened or there's some sort of yes. like personal gripe i think it's actually more likely because i this was the first time i had heard of this uh this movie i don't think that there's any sort of uh 
grand thing. Like, there's no corruption being uh, exposed that would threaten somebody's payoff. So, I mean, usually when you see this pattern, it's like, just fuck this guy in particular, and this is the excuse that we're going to use uh, in order to do so. So, I mean... Who did Michael Moore piss off? I guess is my question. Well, that's a good guess, but I think target. You know, it does target one man in particular, a man named Jeremy Grantham, um, who incidentally show. Uh, I didn't realize this showed up in a documentary I mentioned uh, or recommended a while back, uh, which I now <laughs> regret. Uh, but Jeremy Grantham. He's this British investor type, billionaire type, who uh, owns quite a bit of private land and has been involved in a lot of these biomass production, or I'm sorry, processing facilities and logging ventures. And he is a uh, a partner of McKibben, and uh, Gibbs was able to find uh, some kind of financial information showing that uh, Grantham had given uh, upwards of several million dollars to three uh, to the uh, Sierra Club and to the 350 organization, uh, as well as all the other organizations. So it does seem like the film, yeah, at least at one point, does make a direct correlation between a sort of billionaire investor class and these supposed uh, anti-establishment climate activist types. Yeah, I mean, be pissed off. billionaires giving money to the Sierra Club is... To put it lightly, nothing new. Yeah. It's like, I don't know that anyone would be either shocked or appalled by that. I mean, uh, Ted Turner is probably the most famous, uh, I guess you can call him a conservationist. He owns millions of acres of land in places like Montana. Um, I have wondered if he is responsible, partly at least, for the Georgia Guidestones, which are mysteriously placed uh, in a part of Georgia, which is where CNN is headquartered, which he founded, uh, that talk about the sustainable number of the human population being about 500 million, which would be obviously quite a dramatic drop from where we currently are, about 80% or so. Well, here's... Here's a here's another fun tidbit uh, on Twitter. Klein condemned the film as quote truly demoralizing, and promoted a quote big blog slash fact check of the film by Ketan Joshi, a former communications officer for the Australian wind farm company Infigen Energy. Uh, so you see the the tentacles starting to emerge here. Um, it, it's it's honestly. It's fascinating that uh, Blumenthal had to, you know, jump in here and and defend, uh, you know, defend the film and put his his name behind uh, the defense. Um, I won't go too into the details. He does refute many of the arguments, the very more technical arguments made against the film that it's somehow misleading. He he does find a way to refute them as being basically uh, an argument over semantics. Um, but there is a uh, there are several links to other articles backing up his claims, and he does link to two articles that came out this year. One of which uh, is an article with Bloomberg, strangely enough, who does show up in the film as uh, one of these uh, sort of uh, professional climate funders, along with Boeing, which is uh, very strange. Uh, wind turbine blades can't be recycled, so they're piling up in landfills. And the, uh, the header photo is um, pretty surreal. It's basically a bunch of chopped up uh, uh, wind turbine blades. 
in a giant burial in uh, Casper Regional Landfill, Wyoming. Which I misspoke earlier. Uh, I guess mostly they're composite now, not uh, giant aluminum. I guess the shaft is usually uh, has significant aluminum components. Yeah, I think, I think the blades themselves are fiberglass or something like that. Which is great because you can't even melt it down and you can't uh, do make anything some uh, delicious white claw out of it. Exactly. You can, you can literally do nothing with fiberglass once you've actually composited the material. It, and it's extremely toxic, by the way. As it starts to, uh, you know, slowly fade away, it will lead to groundwater uh, contamination. It will cause severe problems. It will uh, leave the soil incredibly dry and toxic. This has been documented in several parts of China. They've effectively ruined entire small regional farming communities and rice paddies with fiberglass contamination. Um, it's per- it's about as bad as it gets. And, and, you know, it does link to another article that came out more recently uh, Solar panels are starting to die. What will we do with the megatons of toxic trash in on uh, grist.org? And uh, this has been a perennial complaint of, I think, the right. And it's one of those gotcha questions you can level against people on, I don't know, uh, Fox News or whatever with their environmental activists. Like, well, yeah, what about the solar panels? And to be fair, um, the film itself does go into detail about, again, the materials engineering of modern solar panels. And it is a worthwhile complaint that solar panels, their production process, their recycling process are all incredibly toxic and very complex and energy intensive. Um, And they do require a massive global supply chain to both produce, maintain, and move around. Um, The problem is, that honestly, at this point, uh, it seems to be ignored by the wider establishment. It's not something that is actually a, a, uh, a hard-hitting argument. It uh, seems to be totally ignored, and no one really seems to care anymore that the solar panels are... You know, just to put on my neoliberal hat for a moment, like, obviously the grift of quote-unquote carbon markets is well understood that this is a piece of paper that lets you trade it in for cash effectively right that you know when people talk about a quote-unquote market mechanism they're trying to shaft you if they meant market they would say market and to put on that neolib hat all of these issues of okay but does this actually run at a energy uh, net energy gain or net energy loss over the 20-year expected lifetime of this solar panel or this wind turbine farm or whatever, these all go away if you have some sort of pricing on the electricity that is produced or just power per se that reflects whatever social harms or environmental harms you imagine derive from its production. So in other words, the fact that we're talking at all about like, well, is it actually possible that uh, wind turbines or solar panels run at a net energy loss or that the environmental cleanup uh, costs uh, make them prohibitive in the long run? The fact that we're even having this discussion indicates that the market is completely broken and runs by government fiat. If you just, you know, tax the shit out of oil or natural gas, that's not necessarily a optimal uh, situation because cheap energy actually can have positive environmental effects because it allows you to 
uh, actually bootstrap your economy and have more sophisticated manufacturing technologies, uh, achieve higher power densities. Like there's, there's some advantages to it. But if that's your view of the world, that every, you know, barrel of oil that we draw out of the ground has these bad effects eventually, you can put a price on that. And the same people that are happy to grift off of a regulatory framework that allows them to mint money at your expense would also be happy to actually, you know, build a cost-effective power plant that happened to be carbon neutral or less carbon intensive due to the price of carbon. Well, it, the film does make an interesting point that, uh, or one one of the one of its more interesting points is this discussion over the end of coal, the twilighting of the coal industry, which was also brought up in the debate last night. Um, was really a mask for the wider introduction of the natural gas industry. And that many of these supposed solar farms, many of these supposed carbon neutral or energy neutral or 100% renewable energy institutions are really utilizing. Was that a, was that a fossil fuel vehicle in the background there? Yeah, I'm sorry. That was, sorry. Um, Yes, yeah, someone was. You should have gone and collected the fo- the toll, bro. I know. I should have extracted a carbon neutral from him or something like that. I should have beat the shit out of him for uh, for poisoning the world. Um, but effectively, that much of the sort of branded 100% renewable energy, branded carbon neutral energy uh, foundries, a lot of these plants, uh, buildings, and so forth, large commercial centers are hooked up to existing electrical grids that are utilizing either coal or they're utilizing natural gas increasingly. Many of the uh, solar arrays actually have natural gas lines directed to them because they need natural gas lines to power up the primary systems and power up most of the mechanical, electromechanical systems in the morning before there's enough sun out because the batteries are not really storing enough and you know, they're transferring energy immediately, so there's not exactly uh, enough power left over from the day before to start up the next day. And this process takes several hours. Um, the reality, though, is that the coal industry being twilighted is, seems like the cause du jour of many of these professional activist types. And increasingly, uh, it, it's branded as being about clean energy, clean energy, which is ironic. Um, in the 70s, 80s, and some somewhat into the 90s, um, who was it that was pushing for the utilization of natural gas? Well, again, it was the environmental left. Um, Colorado was one of their favorite states for the production of natural gas. Uh, there was always talk of uh, obviously Pennsylvania, uh, Oklahoma, and so forth, that this would actually be the way of the future. Um, this would be the way in which we could prevent the coming ice age, which was the uh, the environmental apocalyptic scenario of the 1970s, uh, would be the utilization of natural gas. Now, of course, they, um, they detest and they pretend to uh, no- not notice is really what's replacing coal. It's not mass amounts of uh, these futuristic looking solar arrays, it is uh, natural gas facilities and, and natural gas supply systems. 
Um, there is another funny bit from this uh, very lengthy defense of Planet of the Humans. Um, Blumenthal basically uh, then goes to bat for Gibbs and gets into a series of arguments with these this cabal that is uh, trying to take the film down. And he comes across a man named Anthony Ingrafea, uh, who was referred to him by Josh Fox, who basically gave up trying to argue with Blumenthal and instead let someone else do the work. Uh, and he also put his name on this letter to have uh, Planet of the Apes banned. I'm sorry, Planet of the Humans banned and uh, taken off the Internet. Uh, he's a, a civil engineer and co-founder of Physicians, Scientists and Engineers for Healthy Energy. I'm just going to toss out that scientist is now a dead word. Yeah. It doesn't mean anything. It might mean that you have a PhD, uh, but they're just sort of handing those out now. So it's basically just one level short of like techno priest. Well, in the last few years, of course, there's been a great deal of discussion around both the replication crisis and the citation crisis in uh, uh, doctoral and postdoc research. So, yeah, a PhD doesn't mean too much. Um, so he's the founder of this whatever group, uh, which advocates for renewables. Ingrafea is a former oil and gas industry insider who turned into a forceful opponent of fracking. In the past six years, he has produced scientific assessments for the government of New York State and California on a transition to mostly renewable energy sources. Ingrafea slammed Planet of the Humans as, quote, way off base and derided research by Ozzy Zenner, the co-producer, as, quote, conspiracy theory shit. He contrasted his credentials with those of Zenner boasting that while he has earned 15,000 citations in peer-reviewed academic journals, Zenner has chalked up a mere 300. Uh, when I turn to the subject of social and environmental damage caused by so-called renewables, Ingrafea argued that the burning, storing, and transportation of fossil fuels outweighed any of those costs. According to Ingrafea, when New York State makes a decisive transition to renewables, only about 2% of the state's land will be occupied by solar and wind farms, which translates to about 1,100 square miles. Which is enormous. Which <laughs> is fucking insane. You can't, I, I can't imagine 1,100 square miles of goddamn solar arrays. How ugly is that? Washington, D.C. is under 100 square miles. Yeah. So just like... Imagine anybody within reasonable driving distance of D.C. just getting paved over. Well, uh, he pointed to the New York State Assembly's Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. Jesus, that's a mouthful. As a embodiment of the foresight of proponents of a near total transition to renewable energy. The bill, which calls for the state to run 70% of its publicly generated energy off of, quote, renewable energy systems by 2030, also mandates that 35% of investments from clean energy and energy efficient energy funds be invested in disadvantaged communities. Ah, now we get to what this is. Recursive grifting. Yes. Ah, Yes. So we finally arrived at the crescendo of what this is really all about, which is what I said at the beginning. 
professional climate activism is really just part of this wider, strange, and sort of uh, out increasingly out of the blue fascination that uh, corporate America, that the elites of this country have with the disadvantaged. And who are the disadvantaged? Well, it's uh, certainly not anyone on this call, according to those people. It's uh, well, it's probably some of the uh, the, the Joe Biden voters, as uh, Carlson calls them, uh, burning down Portland tonight. It's. Uh, I just want you guys to know I'm uh, putting petrol in my car right now. Based. Nice. You gonna go burn down some trees next? Uh, burn the ones I already chopped. Yeah, actually. <laughs> well, I will say for for any listeners with a lot of time on their hands, there actually is a way to create a wood-powered uh, internal combustion engine. Uh, that means you can actually drive yes. a truck down the highway. What you want to do yes. is look up from the 1970s when this was actually being thought about and discussed, uh, ways to create, I think it's a carbon monoxide recycler. Yep. Uh, it will actually run your, your car's engine. Uh, you just have to, um, you have to basically put, put a bunch of charcoal into this thing. And there's a cool YouTube video that I'll try to find a link to that actually shows a guy doing this. Well, Blumenthal um, does eventually himself succumb to this, uh, what he calls the global south um, fascination. Uh, and he cites an article, though, in mining.com. <laughs> Mining's unlikely heroines, Greta Thunberg and AOC. Exponential expansion of global mining is the dirty little secret and glaring blind spot of the Green New Deal evangelists and zero carbon climate warriors. And basically, Blumenthal arrives at his conclusion that much of the environmental, professional environmental activism is done for resource acquisition by the West, by what he thinks of as uh, the sort of imperialistic West. He's from this sort of school of thinking. It's not totally off base in some ways um, that basically the United States runs a colonial empire and the West runs a colonial empire against the global South. And he, he cites the recent ousting of Evo Morales, uh, the former president of Bolivia um, by the United States, or he, what he claims to be the United States, uh, and what he branded a lithium coup. Uh, basically, the thinking is that increasingly this sort of professional environmentalism is used as a cover so that the United States can uh, explore various material science endeavors, mining endeavors around the world at a cheap price uh, with friendly governments to continuously kind of provide the uh, resource backdrop for the expansion of green tech. And that's his chief argument, ultimately, when you boil it down. And so it does kind of probably fit in line more with what Gibbs would say, although he doesn't really say it in the film, he does kind of highlight it in some footage, that really um, the old school left sees the new left as having sold out to the powers that be to harm the global south as they think of it, um, which is a very strange phenomenon. And it's trying to ultimately, I think the film does try and trap you somewhat in 
a very odd sort of elitist Malthusianism. And it tries to trap you in this notion that actually uh, professional climate activism is racist because it's all about resource acquisition. And it's a cover for a uh, CIA whatever to grab the resources of the world. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to add, can you hear me? Yeah. Sorry if it's yeah, yeah. out. I, I, I changed the look. Like I said, I was getting uh, getting gas in my car. Uh, Indoors. I would. Yeah my my main my main criticism would be that so he, his claim is you can't fix problems of industrial civilization with industrial methods. I I would take I mean the extent to which I endorse the film I would I would take a similar but different view and that's that. You know, the, the pollution and various potential catastrophes that are, you know, we may be seeing in this century are created by a specific political system. And that specific political system is not going to be capable of solving them because they created them. And this is something that maybe even the Jacobin people would agree with. I know that it's something that the late great Guillaume Fai would agree with. Uh, because he talked about this specifically. And if I could, as my final words, I'll, I'll have a quote from his book, Convergence of Catastrophes, which actually I should add, that's my other my other criticism would be that he has this kind of myopic view, Gibbs that is, that this is the only catastrophe that's looming on the horizon. And, the, you know, there is a very doom-laden feel to the whole thing. I mean, he, he ends on a very dour note. I mean, much like we often do. Uh, but there's far more than environmental catastrophes looming. But the environmental catastrophe combined with other forms of catastrophe, you get a, a super catastrophe. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, the notion you know, that clim- like climate, quote unquote, is going to be what kills you uh, is. And I mean, oh, the ironic thing is that a lot of the uh, the people who kind of make this a plank of their new religion will be very quick to quick to clarify that well you know it's the it's the wildfires or it's the flooding or it's the population displacement or whatever that actually kills you but yeah, those things don't right. happen in a vacuum either so it well, sort you you know that parable where the guy so you got the the, the guy in the desert and uh two people are trying to kill him so one of them poisons his canteen, and the other drills a hole in his canteen. <laughs> you know, so you, you can chew on that one. But uh, Guillaume Fai said to this point, he said that uh, the planet Earth is not in danger. She has millions of years to recover. It is the human species that, by degrading the ecosystem, is putting itself at risk. Nothing will be done to stem the present developments, and it is already too late. The prognosis is negative. Okay, fine. Then shut up. Like Jesus Christ. Well, that's his. That's his note on environmentalism. It's like, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very frustrating when there are a lot of uh, legitimate issues that there could be things done about them that actually do have both systemic causes if you want to actually empower yourself uh, to deal with something with a systemic cause. Like, we still have absolutely no real idea why global fertility 
is plunging to below replacement levels effectively all over the industrialized world. It's not purely a social phenomenon here. It looks to all appearances like there is some unknown uh, environmental, uh, at least contributor, because if you look at things uh, like obesity rates, which are increasing even in the animal population, it's clear there's something going on uh, as far as uh, perhaps trace environmental contamination or whatever. That would require an actual research project where you would have actual scientists that go out and collect samples of actual shit, uh, in some cases literal, and try to figure out what is actually going on, as opposed to, well, we've ordained as an article of faith that the climate uh, is a problem. Like, this metaphysical concept constitutes a threat of some sort, and therefore we need an open-ended portfolio of, tech, of technological and political solutions, none of which actually fucking work because not one of these people who condemns the human race to extinction because of our failure to act on climate change will even entertain the obvious solution of nuking the shit out of India and China, who develop most of the greenhouse gases that they are so concerned about. That's somehow the one policy proposal that is never actually advanced, despite its clear efficacy. They they engage in just a fundamental unseriousness where it would be one thing if somebody would merely posit a problem that does not actually exist and actually take it seriously as a problem, as opposed to doing what's even worse, taking something that probably is to some extent a problem and actually ignoring their opportunity to fix it in favor of their own agendas. Fuel, give me fire, give me that which I desire!